Hey everybody and welcome to the Health Tech Vision Podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every week. I'm Hugh and back with me today I've got Belle from the Somex team and Liam Cahill, founder of Health Tech Advisory Together Digital. Belle, Liam, how have your weeks been? I'm never ready for that question. Really busy. It's really busy times at the moment. I think we're going to conference season and everyone's ready and everyone's making sure everyone knows where everyone's going to be next week for HET and stuff like that, you know, um, and booking in 600 coffees. So everyone basically has a sort of has some kind of health event at the end of the day. I haven't got access to the app yet, so I'm feeling like woefully underprepared. <laughs> it's going to be a, it's going to be absolute chaos and no one's going to have any, any time to meet me. Chaos is good. Yeah. Yeah. Chaos is, I mean, it, Consistent chaos is less good, but but we'll get there. Um, what's what's occupying your weekly, and what's uh, what's keeping you busy? Ooh, lots of discussions I probably shouldn't talk about at the moment in the background, um, which is maybe going to lead up to our next article I'm going to be doing, and uh, in a particularly contentious area, I'll say no more. Um, and yeah, just just I think it's just it's just go time. Lots of like I, f- I feel like I'm I've got like a million documents that I need to be writing, um, but. I'm here because this is this is fun, you know, so <laughs> I'm very happy to be here. I think it's back to school season. That's why everything has suddenly kind of come in. Everyone's realised that summer's over, September is nigh, and they're just like, shit, if we've got to do all this stuff before well, the end of the just year. Well, I have to put the explicit sign on the uh, Apple Podcasts thing, but fine. Um, how's your, how's your <laughs> yes, week going, Belle? <laughs> Good. Also, I think, yeah, we've had, we've had a really busy, busy month so far, but... We're going, we're moving, and that's the main thing. And lots of exciting things are happening as, you know, testament to all the health news keeps on coming. So, um, yeah, it looks like no one's slowing down, but I think that's only a good thing. Liam, uh, for the you know single listener to this podcast out there who doesn't know who you are, um, do you want to just give a bit of introduction, um, who you are, what you do? Yeah, I'll try. Um, I struggle with this question. Um, so I've spent 18 years in the NHS. Uh, I've built an innovative national organisation that's still hanging around doing fun things, uh, which I've parted from about five years ago. I've kind of got two loves in my life. I've got sort of a professional polyamory. And the first one is that I run radical experiments trying to look at how we can improve the nature of innovation in the system so you know radical or other not slightly less radical but you know i I like the radical ones um trying to look at how we can actually improve the system itself and the way that we work the culture the structure the way our organization structure and then on the other side i help organizations to understand all of the things that i'm trying to fix in my other part of the job and try to be involved in so um i work with national sort of you know local and provider level and uh, with a range of really awesome health tech companies um who are all going through a quite tricky period in a difficult NHS at the moment and trying to find the best possible route into it and how they can get the best proposition across. Um, So, you know, part of that huge collective endeavour to really make sure that in spite of some of the challenges at the moment, we can can get some successes. Fantastic. It sounds like an exciting uh, both sides play to make and uh, really glad you're able to join us today. So thank you. Uh, I think that leads us on quite nicely to our first story of the week then. Our first story actually comes to us straight from Liam. Uh, the NHS blocking case studies of health tech is a critical issue. Guidance is needed and what to do about it. So Liam, I, I saw this and I panicked slightly. Uh, as marketers that work with health tech and healthcare companies, this headline really caught our attention. It's the case studies are incredibly valuable 
for any company and not having clear, impactful stories of how your solution is being used in practice to solve a real problem is going to really get in the way of scaling. So tell us a bit more about this. What are you seeing? What's what's happening? And uh, how big a problem is it? Firstly, I think it's a very fixable problem. And as I kind of come to at the end, I think it's something that could easily be addressed. And so, you know, in a world where there's very little low-hanging fruit, I've, you know, been kind of pointing to some of the national friends to say, hey, here's some low-hanging fruit for you. Let's just imagine, you know, as you say, let's just imagine as an organization, you've gone through, you've done a hugely successful pilot, you're, you feel that what you've got is absolutely working and it's ready to start scaling across the NHS, you know, ready to start driving that economic case and commercial value. And you sit down with the NHS organization oh. and say, and they say, you've made such a difference to our organization. We really love you. Like it's really transformed how our team works with patient X and Y and other parts of the system. Like, you know, like we can't wait to see where this goes. And you go, brilliant. So could we start working on a case study to go through this? And they go, oh no, we can't endorse you. This is a problem. You know, for the health tech organization, this is an absolutely terrible problem. Like this, you know, like uh, someone who commented sort of talked about pilotitis in this, and we absolutely stuck in pilotitis. And this is one of these reasons where we continue to remain in this exact state. This is a problem for the system as well. So last year I was working quite closely with the Health Foundation too, and we did a we did a lot of research. I was helping to lead the research with them um, with public um, and you know, one of the the four big tiers of problems was the proliferation of good practice and innovation isn't spreading across the NHS. It's not a new problem. It's always been a problem. My last organization, we were very much addressing it. But actually, culturally, we have a real nervousness around getting things wrong at the moment in the system, right? And I think there's a backstory, particularly between the NHS and pharmaceutical industry, where people got themselves in hot water, national clamping down, series of events running out. And what we now kind of have is that people feel that they're doing something wrong if they're endorsing something that's made value to their organisation. So I provided some tips. I won't go through those in detail. But I think realistically, what we need at this particular time is something that helps give confidence to the system and clarity and guidance to health tech organisations that allows these two parties to work together to help profile things that are successful and will make a difference in order to help proliferation of the things that we desperately need at this moment. So there we go. You don't even need to read the article because I've more, apart from the tips, but like, yeah, <laughs> I think hopefully that should cover the uh, the summary of it. Thanks for that, Liam. Um, so I guess my question is, how often are you seeing this? Um, like, uh, so uh, you know, a lot of the clients we work with um, is really great when they have really good stories of the work that they do. And I think, you know, we do see a lot of quite positive support from NHS organisations on this. We see a, a lot of trusts, a lot of um, NHS organisations who are very willing to come in and talk about some successes that they've had with some of the companies we work with. How, uh, I guess, how often is this happening? How big a problem is it? And, you know, is this, if there's an easy fix, are we just seeing a few of these here and there? Are you speaking to companies that are experiencing this quite often? I'm seeing quite an increasing tick up in people saying that they don't want to endorse in ways, shape or forms. And I think there is a lack of consistency in what they what they believe is and isn't appropriate. So I think to some degree it's happening quite a lot in different areas. However, I don't think this is a consistent issue all, across all of them. I think it's kind of a postcode lottery. And like, re, you know, realistically, this is one of these where we need to 
reduce the variation of this as, as much as possible. And I think generally, if it's more junior teams or if it has to go to a comms department around things, like if you're working, you've got a CIO or a CCIO who's a senior leader and they're quite like, look, you know, that they're, they're, they're willing to kind of go out and basically sort of do it and, you know, they don't need to consult internally. It tends to be less of an issue. Also in bigger organisations, bigger trusts, it tends to be a big, you know, bigger thing, but um, it tends to be easier. But I think there's some where maybe you've got sort of less senior individuals, different kinds of departments, maybe who haven't you know because digital transformation should be happening in all kinds of different groups and services and departments and I think sometimes when you get to those who maybe don't do this regularly or aren't asked for this regularly this is where the nervousness creeps in they then go to someone to give permission and then that person goes well actually we as a communications team who's generally going to be more risk oriented is then going to say well actually we don't do endorsements so, I mean, does this say something a bit bigger about the NHS's approach to risk generally when it comes to working with um, third parties and, and smaller SMEs? I mean, we've always seen in your work with public, you'll, you'll have seen all of the, the challenges with procurement and, and the, the risk of working with SMEs. Are we seeing this a bit more in that the SMEs are undergoing successful pilots, but now the approach to risk is reflecting just in how they promote themselves in how it might appear to be an endorsement uh, or how it might be perceived externally by other parties. I think this is a, a huge, huge topic, probably that we're, <laughs> we don't have time to fully unpack today. But what I would say is, all I can see is that the challenges and the reactiveness and some of the slight political changes between church and state, I think has meant that risk is risk aversion is something that is going up and i think this man and i think you know as a root cause that drives through to manifest in a number of different ways so our perception of how much evidence is acceptable and what we're willing to take as enough on innovation and new things that have never happened and existed before um i think you know in the way that obviously we've just talked about that can be a way that you know risk aversion can kind of go on so um i think at the moment you know that the NHS in grappling with a number of these challenges is nervous about doing the wrong thing, spending the wrong money. You know, there's a huge amount of hands coming down and sort of looking to control different things that are going on, you know, through the, through the system layers. And it's, it's difficult to see why that wouldn't result in the things that we're talking about. I think one of the things that we see with our clients is that it's not just an NHS issue as well. Like this is something that affects health systems and people in health systems across the world. And I know one of the things that we found talking to um, clinicians working within hospitals and elsewhere um, across Europe, say, is that their hesitance is often that they're unwilling to show that endorsement before the product has the appropriate regulatory approval so CE marking if in Europe FDA if in the US um and actually once you have that regulatory approval they'd be more willing to come forward but obviously then you're sort of caught in a sort of catch-22 situation where a case study would massively help a company get that regulatory approval in the first place and it might be that that organization is is willing to go sort of off record in that case and they probably are to support the application but it is an interesting one where you have people that have been really vital to the development of this technology and their pilot or whatever in a in a hospital or healthcare setting has massively led to the development of the product you have. Um, 
So of course the company want you to shout about it because they feel that you're a really inherent part of that process. You've really helped them get to where they are and they're proud of it and they, they're really proud of your role in it and they kind of assume you are too. Um, but until you get that kind of piece of regulatory approval as a high ranking clinician or similar, you're unwilling to put your personal name on the line. Yeah, totally. <sighs> Look, let's be honest. Like, and I do a lot of work with the, the military as well. And I think it's, there's a similar kind of level in areas that we work or public systems that we work where the consequence of getting something wrong is life or death. It's entirely understandable that the consideration and sensitivity towards risk will be higher. It's just a natural consequence that will happen in all healthcare systems. Like if you work in HMRC and you're doing tax, like the worst thing is someone gets a, a letter, they sort it out, you know, maybe they'll get the wrong bill or something like that. And yes, that can have big consequences for, for individuals, a lot of stress and so on, but you're not going to see someone die as a result. So obviously you can, we, it's entirely understandable why this exists. And, you know, the other thing that I would say is, and I think, you know, we need to be entirely honest that there's a huge amount of naivety from the health tech sector in general. A huge number of people who've come into it and often not worked in it don't understand what it's like to be in front of someone where your decisions make a huge difference to their, their future, their like <laughs> their existence, right? And so, you know, this kind of stuff is, you know, something that I think companies can be very much overeager. And I think, you know, that's something that I try to capture as well that, you know, like trying to just come in and, it, and like misuse or sort of misquote, you know, I think help it, it doesn't support the community to be able to do that so there is a responsibility of the community to kind of make sure they're doing this because for every company that does something bad bad news spreads fast in the nhs something clamps down they stop you know and then suddenly it, it spoils it for everybody so you know i think this this is one of these topics where there's there's a whole number of different you know different layers in this that you know that, that really impact the, the story in itself so two things then uh, that come out of your article for me and if you are listening and haven't read the article, I'll go and check it out right now. It is really good and raises a lot of salient points and some really good guidance for health techs. So thank you for that, Liam. One is just give us a quick summary then of what of, of how a health tech or a supplier working with the NHS can manage this risk. So first thing is be upfront, particularly it like, you know, the ideal situation is when you're sitting down with them, particularly if like many of you are giving discounts at the moment, then try and put it in writing that actually that this is an exchange for a case study or that you're giving a discount conditionally. Like I don't think enough organizations are necessarily doing that. If you've got it in writing beforehand, great. And actually throughout the whole process, if you're working with someone who then potentially is going to backtrack because someone said something, having something in writing where you've been clear around your appropriateness is really important. Um, so try and set the terms up front. If ever I were to to support an NHS organisation, I'd be very clear that this is about best practice, how we're going to ask the questions, what we're going to ask, making sure that we are not here to get endorsement. However, if they want to or they choose to, that's their decision, right? You know, if they want to say, this is the best thing since sliced bread, then naturally you're not going to want, but trying to make sure that your intention in this is, is appropriate, right? Um, I think if in some cases where you are looking like not like endorsement isn't always a bad thing. And actually, if you are working with someone senior and saying, we'd really love your endorsement, you know, we both believe in this project and we'd really like to get it out, then that's just an adult conversation. But I think quite often, like there is the biggest issue that in many, many regards that I would maybe try and write about all of them in some regards is the elephant in the room problem, right? And that is if you come in and you don't address something, it will usually come back and bite you in the NHS, right? So 
say it up front, be clear, make sure you use about your you know intentions, try and use some restraint in terms of how you're doing it. Like you might think, okay, this is our ticket. This is going to affect our investment. This is going to affect so many different things. And you want them to say, this is the miracle the NHS needs. And I love it more than my own children. Of course you want them to say that, but if their comms team says no, then you've got nothing. You've lost the whole thing, right? Um, which I imagine the comms team would probably clamp down on that one, rightly so, right? Um, so feels I like think one you, they you might know, just go, no, not really. <laughs> you, you can't say that. <laughs> yeah, um, comms says no. Um, <laughs> so actually, I think on this one, I think it's about proportionality, restraint, clarity, doing things up front, and making sure that you've that you, that you talk it through in a way that demonstrates that you understand where the line is, because that gives confidence to them that as a partner, you're doing that, you know? So I think that's, that's that, the broad, the, 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 the broad cross section of the, uh, of the points. And obviously comms gets, comms, um, every experience I've had with, um, NHS comms team at the local and regional level is that they come in right at the end when you're, when you're writing up the case study and you've got the, you've got the pieces and most of the, I've, to be honest, I've rarely struggled, but I know that some people will, to get that 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 sign off to get that yeah okay you can put out this press release you can put out this case study but is there anything health techs can do up front to get that piece through comms early you know is there a stakeholder management um piece to play like i think i think again advance what we're doing why it's appropriate you know um you know giving other examples of where it's been done elsewhere so you're showing that it's something that they can point to and say actually there is some form of precedent um you know but again make if you're if you're getting it down in writing in your routine at some particular point you're going to say all right we're coming to this just to be clear is there any risk that your comms team is going to have, take issue with this later on okay can here's here's the trail of what we've discussed and why in our reasoning would it be worth you sending it to them like as I said before, I spend a lot of time in organizations. And this isn't just external organizations, right? If you go inside an organization and someone's doing something and then they've got this big plan, then suddenly there's another team which might be some form of governance or some kind of gateway team who basically have a yes-no role in an organization. If you involve them in advance and you do it positively, they will be your supporters because you're engaging with them. But if something lands on their desk and they've got a deadline and they're like, oh, what is this? Oh, you know... The likelihood of them saying no is so much higher, you know, and I think this kind of comes to broader work for a health tech company with the NHS in that, like, don't just rely on one person to be your champion. Try and think about how you can develop things for the key stakeholders who are going to be part of championing it, agreeing budget and making decisions around different key elements and try and produce things to give them briefings because they're going to be grateful usually if it's a good briefing that you've done that so you know again i think it's yeah absolutely i think it's about trying to make sure in advance that you're demonstrating that you're doing the right thing before they assume you're doing the wrong thing thanks liam great advice for any health techs uh go read the article um make sure that you're doing everything that we've talked about um today ahead of your your next pilot and make sure that you're capturing learnings and stories uh let's go on to our next story Our next story comes to us from Digital Health Intelligence, ICS digital leaders prioritizing shared health and care records. So there's a lot in here. The Digital Health Intelligence team has surveyed digital leaders in ICSs to understand what their priorities are, the digital, you know, where they see their digital maturity and other key metrics around digitization, their preferences, um, and where ICSs are going when it comes to digital. 
Before we go on, it's really important, I think, to point out that there's 42 ICSs uh, around England and only 16 responded to this survey. But there are some interesting takeaways nonetheless. Um, as the headline says, the highest ranked digital priority for ICSs was shared health and care records. Second was health provider digitization, so making sure that everyone's actually digitally mature. And the third was empowering citizens. Top priority at the local level was, again, that digital maturity piece. And then moving on to the convergence on the acute EPRs. There is a huge amount to talk about this, uh, in this, just in terms of where we think ICSs are going. I want to drill down on one um, bit of this, which is just there's quite a lot of negativity in some of the responses in terms of where people see the big barriers, where people see the challenges, um, how many uh, people have appointed the right, you know, the right people to be the champion of their digital strategies. But that balances out with quite a lot of opti- optimism. Um, uh, more than half of ICS digital leaders um, feel that they're able to deliver the priorities in their digital strategies within the next three years. So, Liam, I guess first first question to you. Is this optimism warranted? And what do you think <laughs> of the priorities? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, okay, look, so... You know, like I, I do digital roadmaps for organization and sort of teach forms of transformation. I say there's three kinds of three kinds of stages that we have to do. And they're necessary stages. We can't get part, you know, we can't get to the end of the story before we're at the start of the story. And, you know, they are platforming, transforming, and disrupting. So I think firstly, the reality is, is that there's a whole lot of plumbing the NHS still needs to do which is a prerequisite for a lot of the more advanced things that we're talking about time, you know, like the the fourth story that we'll hopefully get today, you know, that you're kind of in today, like is a perfect example of the reliance upon what people are talking about. So it's understandable that, you know, that actually it's good that we're being optimistic that we're doing the plumbing. Like I think all of us would like it that we could get this out of the way and start doing bigger things. And I think, you know, realistically, the system is screaming out for the disruption for us to really grab this digital revolution with both hands and start really changing service models and changing how we can reach into patients' lives and support them to stop things happening rather than happening themselves. But obviously, in terms of care, we are where we are. And so I think it's, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing to be optimistic that they're on course and that they're able to deliver this essential thing that needs to happen. On the other hand, of course, we are in a really difficult state in the NHS. And I think, you know, and I don't credit this to the integrated care board systems, you know, and and the providers who they're working with, but there's a shortfall of money in the system. They've got very limited money. And the reality is, is that, you know, some of the other projects that could really be the seeds of change, the things that could really start to dramatically improve care and the systems and how they work, what obviously this survey doesn't really cover is how much the big projects they're talking about with a degree of positivity is filling up all of the budget and capacity and the individuals they have in order to make this really big stuff happen. Because realistically, this isn't innovation. It's improvement. It's innovation, right? You know, it's, it's stuff which is clear. We know what it is. It's relatively certain and it's necessary. So... <sighs> mixed feelings about this you know i think all of us have a feeling of urgency that we want to be able to progress and i think also you know 
you know, at the same time, all of this money, like if you speak to the average health tech company about where they feel there's any money in the system, or if they come to me to ask where I think the money is in the system, which is happening more and more and more, the story that we're not being told here is how much of that is being swallowed up on these essential but not disruptive things that we'd like to see. I'm interested in your viewpoint on that in a bit more detail, because I think everything you said is obviously very true. There's the, there's the big challenge between the, the improvement and the innovation and disruption piece, and budgets are limited. But we've, we're obviously hearing lots of great, week-by-week week basis, we, you know, we'll put them out, but they come from across the system, all these great disruption and innovation stories that will have be occupying a certain amount of budget for every healthcare organisation around, around the country. Equally, we hear stories like this one, um, talking about digital maturity being a priority. Um, we hear uh, Health Service Journal a few months back had um, yeah, digital maturity of their organisation, of most organisations, is, is subpar. We're repeatedly hearing challenges with digitization of paper records, um, ensuring digital maturity across trusts, ICSs, everything like that. Do we need to get more comfortable with the idea that improvement should be the priority, that the money that is available should go to the projects to get us to that basic plumbing level um, where we've got the infrastructure, we've got the shared care records across each ICS, things are working at the minimal level before we start putting our minds to total disruption and innovation. Mm. COVID played a big role in this, right? So, you know, we'll t- like everybody jumped on, jumped on the sort of parade train and started saying like, this is it, this is, it's happening now, right? We're, some, something big is going to happen and we're going to see it. And then what's kind of started to happen is that everything started going, well, actually, we've got to get the basics, right? We've still got to get the, the, the essential things done. We've got to upskill people. We've got to finish implementing the the systems we've got at the moment. You know, we've got all of this, all of this stuff to do. Should we be more comfortable with it? I think we should be more realistic about it, you know? With local organisations, yeah. If, like, if, if their money means that 90% is platforming and getting the basics right and 10% is on some transformative projects or something around that, then I think we need to be comfortable because that's all that they can do. I think, you know, I know enough CIOs and CCIOs and CNIOs to know that they're all trying their very best with the resource and the people that they have. And they know what we're talking about here, that you've got to get the basics right before you start doing more. There's no, there's no, there's no ability to skip this. And if we do, we're in a mess. We're an absolute mess if we try and do fancy, sexy projects. They all just fail and then we're just, you know, in a problem. But in answer to the question, should we be comfortable with it? No. I think we should be demanding that more money and energy and political capital is being put into addressing the fact that our health system is in a mess. In spite of lots of people doing lots of hard work, we cannot get away from the simple fact that every year the number of people with the number of complexities with the number of times waiting for things to happen, with the, you know, still reducing access to these. Everything, if you read every operational plan, if you read every part of the long-term plan, if you read what the Health Foundation is saying about us being in a poly crisis, we are in wartime footing on the future of our National Health Service, right? We are absolutely in a time where it's getting very much already in make-or-break territory. So should we be comfortable with getting the basics right when the thing which is going to provide the next great leaps in care is there 
and it's waiting for us to be able to kind of get into that. So I think we should be we should be understanding of those who are doing their very best to do everything they can, but we should be everything other than comfortable in demanding that we see more support in transformation before it's too late. Love it. And I think that's that uh, that level of passion is probably going to dominate the news cycle until the uh, at least the next election and probably uh, you know for the next five ten years um, to go so. forward. You really would. That ties like it's interesting. Like there's this another news story in pitching this week, which I'm not sure we'll have time to go on to, but um, about this 10 million fund to like launch this innovative medical technology platform to get innovative technologies into the NHS. And it's a pilot and they say the, the learnings will be used to actually kind of flesh out what this will look like going forward. But like you say, in terms of budget, like 10 million, it's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. Um, you know, one one provider could could do with that, you know, especially if you're thinking of creating a technology at scale, like you could give that to one, one company and it would um, be impactful. Um, and, you know, I'm interested to see like how small the packages are that get seeded out to people for that and how much impact it actually makes. Um, but yeah, no, I'm totally with you. And it's, it's, an, it's an amazing and interesting time to be in health tech when you are so frustrated by the by the case that is the UK health system at the moment in particular because it's angering and you see all these people who turn up every day to run companies where they are trying they are desperately trying to make a change in the world they're trying to improve people's lives and improve people's medical care in whatever way that might be whether it's direct to the customer whether it's an app whether it's in an NHS system whether it's accessible via another route but these people are so motivated to help people's lives. And it's sad when you look at the healthcare system we've got that makes it so difficult for them to do that. Yeah. At times. Because we live with the consequences of this, right? Yeah. Like all of our like all of our parents could be living with the consequences of this. We could be living with the consequences mm-hmm. of this very soon. You know? Yeah. We could like I, I can't imagine what it would be like, you know, knowing the digital system, being on a waiting list when I know of a solution which is stumbling through, potentially failing because it can't get any adoption that could really address one of the areas of a waiting list or improve this. And living with that experience of knowing about that, you know, like obviously the average person on the street doesn't, when they're waiting for an operation or when they're waiting for something, doesn't know what the alternative that's available. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, if ever I'm in that situation where I do know the alternative is available and have that the anger that that my that my my mum's life might hang in the balance because we haven't managed to do that. Mm-hmm. Every single person in society lives with the consequences of whether we get this right or not. So it's it's just it's just so big. Let's talk about the barriers to getting this right then. Digital skills, prioritization and service pressures. I mean, those are three pretty big things to deal with. Um, I think we've talked about prioritization and service pressures a bit much. Digital skills in the NHS. I mean feels insurmountable at this point. There's obviously a lot of great work going on at HEE, um, now NHS HEE, I think, since the merger. Um, I guess, how do we fix it? How do we, how do we get those skills? You know, is, it, is it about bringing people in from other fields? Is it about training and upskilling? Um, but I guess it's probably not about you know, ensuring that clinicians have it at this point, is it? Because we've got to take time off their plate, not put more on what, what what's your thoughts oh, so many thoughts these are big topics this week so one 
the amount of financial restrictions on day rates and stuff like that from getting people in or be, and head and headcount slashes that have happened over the last 12 months. Um, someone contacted me the other day talking about how he was a like really skilled, I checked his profile, really skilled guy in digital trying to get work in health. But everywhere he was going, his day rate was 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 like so far lower. He's a leader, you know, so it's just like he's just like, well, why would I stay in health? I can't do, you know, I had um, I remember a leader from one of the ICBs who left last year um, the organization because she was like, I can't hire a team. I don't have anyone I can get and I can't keep them. I can't attract them. So at that level, we've got some structural problems that's affecting it. Two, I think we've got some cultural problems in that we treat digital skills. And I've seen a lot of digital skills programs. I've seen some great ones, but I've seen some digital skills program where they make it all about being able to use the software, use the system, use the computer, better input records. Again, if we look out there in the wide world, they're not the digital skills that we're all adopting, right? The social, emotional, creativity, the ability to build things and try things and experiment and work together in these different ways. So I think one of the bigger problems that we have is that we're treating digital skills like logical cognitive skills and there's still a huge overemphasis on this and i think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what a digital skill is i would say a technical it skill or using it skill is that but digital skills is about this element the next layer down is that realistically digital skills largely if they're social emotional need to be given by experiences and if we have small groups of people who implement things to and on people who then just fill in the boxes they're not going to get those digital skills we absolutely need to find ways to give people some of the space and time. And I appreciate and understand how hard that is in the current context of the environment, but we need to give people to space and time to develop these social emotional skills in psychologically safe environments where going back to risk assurance, they feel that they can make mistakes and learn from them and improve and do things in agile ways. And at that cycle that we're actually addressing this. So this is an organizational problem. It's a cultural problem. We na name it as a skills problem, but it's about actually defining what skills are. And then, of course, going back, we also need people to learn skills for the next technology rather than some system that was invented in 1990 that we're still in the process of trying to roll out, which is not part of the digital revolution. It's already a legacy system that's being implemented. So multifaceted problem. And I, I tried to do that as quick as I could, but mm. there's a whole number of elements when we talk about digital skills in this. I'm fascinated by, by what you just said, which is that digital skills are actually social and emotional skills. Like in your, and you obviously say you've got lots of experience of seeing digital training programs that you, th you think are good as well. Like in your mind, what makes a really good training program? What do people leave learn, having learnt or having been upskilled in? I'm going to shout out um, Sussex Community Foundation Trust. So the stuff that Dermot and Antonia and co are, are doing there um, is awesome. What they do is they get a group of people, they inspire them, they talk about the capability to help them change their mental model of what digital is, clinicians from their services. They give them space and time to build their own projects and to try different things, like a true champions program. They support them but don't dictate to them what they should be doing they bring in speakers and i was very lucky to be brought in to talk about the next generation of technology to them and do a session with them and, and to talk about things like design thinking and how to research and understand the nature of problems and stuff like that before solutionizing and then giving them the space and time to come up with things and then what they did which was amazing is i think they used the brighton arena or something to celebrate the work they had done and inspire everybody else to do that and 
everybody should be looking at what they're doing there and talking about this because that is digital skills building. And they're addressing a lot of the factors that I'm talking about here and doing it really, really well. They're the playbook for me. And, you know, they will say that this is just, they're on the journey. They want to keep making it better and better. Great. And they've got people who've been on that journey who are now involved in the next journey and their future iterations. Like that to me is what we should be prioritizing. But it's about devolution. It's about giving people space, not prescribing skills to them, you know? And I think that mindset change needs to happen. And we need to be learning a lot from organizations like SCFT. Let's move on to our final story of the week. Our final story of the week comes to us from tech.eu. Copenhagen health tech startup Corti raises $60 million in Series B funding. Uh, so this is a really exciting story. I think we are looking at a technology from Corti that, that they call their co-pilot uh, for clinicians to help them essentially deal with a lot of the administrative tasks and possibly clinical tasks that uh, account for burnout and uh, challenges in the way clinicians spend their time. Um, so just reading from the article, providing these overworked healthcare professionals with a literal co-pilot, Corti's AI uh, offer has been trained on millions of patient interactions and acts as a second set of eyes, ears and hands. Uh, in addition to providing a nudge as to when to deliver what care, Corti also provides journaling, coding and QA services. Liam, you were super excited about this investment. Um, well, about the company at least. Uh, I'm sure you're excited about the investment, but less interested in the numbers, more interested in the tech. We've obviously seen a lot of stories about the role of large language models in healthcare and what they're doing for uh, clinicians uh, to take you know, simple tasks, um, document management, transcription of notes and things like that off their hands and give them more time to spend actually talking to the patient. But this is this is this seems to be something different. What are you know what are Corti doing and what what makes it special? Um, I'm going to refer back to previous pigeon session um, that I think you profiled recently, where uh, James was talking about like the time where he got AI and he was in a session. You know, he was in a clinic. And there was all of these interactions happening just in the moment. And all of them at the moment in an analog world are lost. And there's so much in the interactions that we have, not just in the words that we say, but how we say it and the different things that if we could extract them and be able to use artificial intelligence to improve our interactions, this would really change so much. So in my teaching um one of my courses um i talk about how i in the future i can envisage that somebody goes and sits down with their general practitioner and the general practitioner is talking to them and maybe they've just got like a little screen or some cool funky smart glasses and what's happening is it's taking what's being said it's codifying what's being said it is using that codification with a risk stratification uh, algorithm which is taking from a neural network so, you know, digital twins and taking information from them and saying, based on a person like this with the profile from the information, we recommend that you take, you know, personalized route A rather than personalized route B. And that the doctor would be then getting nudges and being able to be supported with their decision making and supporting the patient in different ways. And actually, if you take some of the other AI things around, like, you know, the patient sounds nervous or try to, you know, different routes around that. Now, obviously, we don't want to be putting training wheels on our general practitioners, but actually, what what Corti are doing absolutely fill, ticks a number of the boxes in this vision. And I think as we start to go into this, you know, 
like AI role in doctor-patient interactions or clinician-patient interactions, I should say. Um, what they've done, there's a lot of promise, you know, obviously devil's in the detail. It'd be really good to understand what they've got. You know, I think we've all learned to make sure that we have a, a healthy degree of skepticism when we look at it. But just from having a look at their example and a quick sort of play with their live demo, um, this is absolutely the direction of travel. And the one thing that I would say, although I've said a lot already, is like I work a lot with clinical teams. I sit down and I talk about digital and they go, digital is an extra thing I have to do. I know I have to do it. People need me to fill in the records and so on. And, you know, with one organization in palliative care recently, I've been sort of exploring voice transcription and using the, you know, the, the, the common, you know, the well-known sort of player in this market and it could be valuable. And suddenly they're like, oh, digital is a really exciting thing. You know, suddenly, oh, it's going to take work off me and it can help me with this and I can do it in a different way. This if this vision could reach something where there is a detailed reality and natural case studies in care could touch upon so many patient interactions and ways of care. And I think when clinicians start to see how this comes through, I, I really genuinely believe they're going to, they're going to embrace it with open arms. Of course, a degree of skepticism around what's in the machine and what's doing it, but nobody likes writing notes about their consultation. And, you know, I think it's a great first step to something which could be a really exciting vision. I think the thing that really kind of sticks out for me here, especially in kind of the way this press release is written and stuff, is that they're very keen to get across the fact that this is helping healthcare professionals. It's providing reassurance. It's it's not a technology that's coming in to replace health te- healthcare professionals, which might be worrisome to a patient, but it's also not technology that is there to replace healthcare professionals' decisions, they are still the ones making those final decisions, but they are having the added benefit of this technology, which can help them to do it in a more efficient way. So like you say, the fact that it can just fall upon a database and pull up stuff, and it's just saving the doctor having to go through their notes and find that, it just saves time. And I think when you can very clearly show that value proposition to the people that will be using it, suddenly that thing, like you say, it will click in their mind and they're just going to be like, this is revolutionary. Why on earth aren't we using this already? This is going to save us so much time, especially when, as we know, the administrative burden is so high at the moment on certain healthcare professionals, well, most of them, but particular GPs and things like that. Huge, huge, huge amounts of admin, which we know could be automated to a degree, if not entirely. So doing it in a way where they feel like they still have oversight of that feels like the natural progression and the way to go. Rather than saying, we're going to take this off your hands and do it, you're never going to trust the output if you if if a technology says that. And nor should you. As you say, we need to approach this with a certain amount of skepticism. We need to know what's happening in the box, what's cu- what's in and what's out. Because if not, then these technologies are never going to get adopted and used. But I think the part in making patients comfortable with that as well, because that scenario that you've illustrated where you're sitting across from a GP and they're maybe wearing a fancy headset will be something that to a lot of patients who walk through the door is quite jarring and they're maybe not not comfortable with. So actually that educational piece on the patient's point of view saying, this is what goes in, this is what happens, this is what goes out, this is just helping me, I'm still making all the clinical decisions here, will also be vital, I think, to that uptake. Yeah. That said, I would say that we spend a lot of time really thinking about whether people will accept things, whether it's clinicians and whether it's, you know, whether it's patients or so on. And the analogy I always use is 
you know, we used to drive around the motorway on the on the M40 at bank holiday weekend with my mum and dad arguing in the car, dad's staring at the, dad's driving, mum's staring at the A to Z and they can't decide which route to take, right? If you'd asked them at that point about whether they'd let the little computer tell them where to sure. go, what would they have said? If in five to 10 years, we say, would you let the car drive you around to make all the decisions you get in, say, where you want to go? And obviously, well, getting a car can be a life and death decision, particularly with kids driving down to Cornwall over the summer holidays, as I experienced. But I'm from Cornwall. I, I know those roads well. We, we learn to trust things. And so, yeah, like we, we need to make sure that, it's used, that the user experience is there. But I think if they know, you know, if we're starting to see what's happening and they're starting to see digital play into their lives in a health way, in a positive way, I'm less concerned about people embracing the experience within the system and those recipients of care from the system. Yeah, I think that's fair. But this is really, I think, Corti, I'm looking forward to seeing what they come out with. It's going to be yeah, great. I just hope they can survive in this in this difficult market. As we say, if everybody's doing basic skills and getting their shared care record, and obviously they're not a UK primarily oriented company, let's hope another, like, but let, you know, if that is the thing that's happening in every health system, let's hope that this is the right time for things like this to be able to get traction. That was uh, an enlightening conversation, Liam. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, really appreciate your time. And thank you, Belle, as well. Uh, that was the Health Tech Pigeon team analysing the health tech news so you don't have to. Join us next week and check out all the articles we've talked about and some of the best jobs and pods in health tech at healthtechpigeon.com. Mm-hmm.